Good Friday service um, where we just take a moment to remember Jesus' death and the events leading up to it. Um, a lot of emotions, a lot of things um, can come with this. Um, and tonight's going to look different than your average Sunday morning service. Uh, so I just welcome you to lean into that this evening. We have journals available for you if you'd like on our back table by where you came in. Um, please feel free to help yourself if that is something that you would like to use, um, again, to lean into this evening. Um, but we will start by singing a few songs of praise tonight.
On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he arose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Luke 22, verses 40 through 46. As we take time tonight to step into what Jesus is experiencing in his final hours, here at this moment we meet Jesus and his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, a place he would often pray, a safe place for him to dwell. Here is with his disciples, and he asks his closest friends to sit and pray with him. He invites them into a time where he is um, nervous, he's anxious, he is dreading what is about to come. He knows he will shortly be betrayed, handed over to the authorities, that one of his friends will betray him with a kiss. He knows that the best thing for him to do right now is to be there and to pray. And he asks his friends to join him in this, to join him in prayer, to um, ask for the Father's help in what is about to happen. And this is also what we see Jesus do. Not only does he ask his friends to pray for him, he asks, he sits and asks the Father to help him. See, he knows what has to happen. He knows that in order to correct the mistakes made by Adam and Eve, that he has to give up his life. He prays and he asks God for help to take this cup from him. He knows that God's will must be done. But he is tempted to not go through with it. His human self is not ready for it. He does not want it. He wants God to take it away and to find a different way. In his human self, he understands what must happen. But we see him be met by God. He sends an angel to strengthen him. God is with him in this moment. But then we see Jesus praying more, more earnestly, more desperately. He is fervently asking God for strength, for help, for prayer. We see and experience his agony. Luke here even talks about how he is sweating so much it is like blood. We see him being human. I think oftentimes when we think of Holy Week and Jesus dying on the cross, we forget that he is a man, a human man, that has to sit through and go through it all. We see him broken in spirit. We see him being human. And I believe that we all have been in this place of anguish, of brokenness, of hopelessness, of utter despair, and the only thing you know to do is to call out to God in that moment. We've all experienced that depth of I have no idea what to do and I don't want to do it or I have something I want to do and I don't want to do it and we're asking God to help us in that 
This is where Jesus is in this moment, just like we have all been there. After some time of prayer, and I'm assuming weeping, and gnashing of teeth, and pulling of hair, and upsetness, he returns to his closest friends, whom he asked to pray with him. And they were sleeping. I can only imagine the, the sigh that came out of his mouth. They physically couldn't stay awake during their friend's desperate time of need. And just like when we are in those times of need and we maybe are sitting there scrolling our phones, looking for someone to call or text, our friends might fail us too. Our friends will fail us too. But God will not. Oftentimes, at our hour of most need, in our hour of brokenness, all we wanted to know that in those scariest moments that we are not alone, that someone is with us. And this is what Jesus wanted as well. He wanted to know that someone was with him. But before Jesus and us can get to the riotous joy of Easter, which is coming, we get this steady promise from Scripture and from this um, story that Luke is sharing with us that God knows what it is like to be completely broken in spirit, to be desperately crying out. We get the steady promise what it is like to need someone to just sit with you and be with you at your time of need. I've chosen an image for you to sit with. I want you to take time to dwell on it, to pray about it, and to sit with Jesus in his darkest moment. To sit with you as you are maybe currently in a really dark moment or you've been there before. Take time, ask God to be with you. Ask God to guide you and pray with Jesus in this. Because the best news of all is that God will not fall asleep. That God will be with you in this. And that is the steady promise.
Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance, and when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Luke twenty-two fifty-four through 62 I imagine this scene, and as they're taking Jesus away, I imagine Peter slinks into the background, wanting to be invisible, wanting to disappear. I imagine he does, I I have a picture of, of Peter slowly backing away, like getting lost in the shadows. And then to begin to trail this party as they lead Jesus away, like a private investigator trailing someone without wanting to be seen. And my, my first thought was, why? Why would he do that? That doesn't sound like the Peter that we know. Right, just a few minutes ago, Peter had grabbed a sword, who Peter, by the way, was a fisherman, not a soldier, and had no idea what he was doing with a sword, was swinging it wildly at these people and cut off an ear. Why now is he backing away? Well, we learn that in verse 51, Jesus tells him to back off, let them be. So it makes sense that Peter would back off and revert back into the shadows. His wavering, his unwavering proclamation in verse 33 where he says, Master, I'm ready for anything with you. I would go to jail for you. I would die for you. Seems foolish now. It seems foolish because he doesn't even attempt at this point to make a nonviolent stance for Jesus. He just, again, moves back into the shadows, wanting to disappear. Luke tells us then that that Jesus' earlier words to Peter, that you will deny me. You'll deny me three times, in fact. Those words prove true. Jesus' prediction was right. And the reality for me 
And I, I, I imagine for all of us in this room is that we can't relate to Peter in this moment, in Jesus' arrest moment. I'm sure that Peter had no idea what to do. Everything that was happening was happening so fast. His friend, his mentor, the man that he had come to love was now being arrested and hauled away. The man that he thought was the best hope we have to get rid of our Roman oppressors is now being arrested. I don't know how to relate to Peter in that moment. That's never happened to me. But I can relate to Peter after that moment, after the arrest. I think, I believe that Peter had the best of intentions when he said, I will go to jail for you. I would die for you. I think Peter had the best of intentions. At some point, he was willing to do that, just not now. And for us, it may be more like this. Hey, Jesus, I promise. It's my intention, Jesus, that I'm going to have a better attitude for, for my coworkers. I promise, Jesus, that I'm going to stop gossiping. I promise, Jesus, that I'm not going to yell at my kids and blow my top when they're not listening to me. I promise, Jesus, to do a better job of of extending grace to the people that are hard to love. Or I promise, Jesus, it's my intention to forgive the people who hurt me. But even with the best intentions, even with the best of intentions, I fail. We fail. And we come up short of whatever those intentions to live for Jesus were, just like Peter did. Luke tells us that right as Peter fell short for the third time, the rooster crows. And in that moment, Jesus locks eyes with Peter. Whew. Can you imagine what that look looked like, felt like? That Jesus, in the middle of all of what is happening to Jesus, what Jesus knows is going to happen, he's going to get mocked, he's going to get beat and tortured and then die in that moment, Here's what I imagine that look to be. That look is a look of forgiveness and compassion. Where Jesus looks at Peter and says, I know that you fell short, Peter, but you're forgiven and don't give up. Continue to press on. And that is still true that that same look, that same sentiment is still true for us. When we fall short of living how we intended to live for Jesus or how we wanted to live for Jesus, we can know and we can be confident that Jesus isn't holding that against us, that we're forgiven, and that Jesus is encouraging us to continue moving forward. 
And we can be assured of that because we know something that Peter didn't know. Peter didn't know in that moment what we know now, that on that first Good Friday, Jesus' willing and sacrificial death accomplished the forgiveness we need for all of the times that we fall short, that we don't live up to our intentions for Jesus. And not only that, not only does it cover us, it gives us hope and gives us strength to keep, to keep on trying, to keep living like Jesus lived. How deep the Father's love for us How vast beyond all measure That He should give His only Son To make a wretch His treasure How great the pain of searing loss The Father turns His face away wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory behold the man upon the cross my sin upon his shoulders
At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me, and if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, are you then the Son of God? He replied, you say that I am. Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and to the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he'd heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, who sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time he spoke to them. Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released a man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. Luke twenty-two, sixty-six through 23, 25. So we, Jesus encounters three different people in this passage. Uh, the first one, is, first one I'm going to talk about is Herod. So it says that Herod was pleased and excited to see Jesus and was hoping that he'd do some sort of miracle, some sort of sign. And he asked him many questions, yet Jesus remained silent. Can we relate to this? We're initially excited to hear about Jesus. We're initially excited what he's going to do in our lives. But what if, what if he's silent? What if he doesn't improve our circumstances? What if we don't get the job? 
the house, the baby? What if our illness doesn't improve? Is he still good? Are we, do we, is he still King Jesus? Or is he still worthy of our worship? What if he's remained silent? Are we worshiping King Jesus, or are we going to worship our experience? It says that Herod dressed him up and mocked him after this, which we probably don't do that, but do we give him our full worship like we should? Next person I want to talk about is Pilate. So Pilate encounters um, Jesus, and Pilate's leadership is on shaky ground. He's been warned by the emperor that he, if there's more riots in the city, he might lose his job, or potentially worse. <laughs> so he has to keep the peace in Jerusalem. So when he encounters Jesus, he's kind of got a tough decision, and he gets excited. He can send him off to Herod. I don't, I don't know if you guys can relate to this, if we can pass off responsibility to somebody else. That's kind of nice. <laughs> we don't have to make the hard decision. But Herod sends him back, and then Pilate has to make a decision. He doesn't see what the religious leaders are saying. He's like, I don't find a basis for charge for this man. He can see the truth. Even his wife, in Matthew it says his wife warns him. I'm, I'm guilty of not listening to my wife often enough. His wife warns him. But the crowd persists. He needs to keep the peace. He needs to keep the crowd happy. It could cost him his job, his reputation. Can we relate to this? I know I can. I'm, I'm a people pleaser by nature. I know I've compromised my values to look better in my job, to look better in the crowd. Are we going to worship Jesus, even when it's unpopular, even if it costs us our job, our reputation? Lastly, the person we might relate to is Barabbas. It might be weird. Can you relate to a murderer, terrorist? But as we've been studying Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, if we have non-righteous anger in our heart, we're We have the same punishment as murder. If we're going against God's law, we're terrorizing God's kingdom. But what happens? Barabbas, who is guilty, is set free. Jesus dies in his place. Jesus, who did nothing wrong, no guilt, takes a guilty man's punishment. So as we look, as we think about these three people, I don't who do you relate to? During our couple minutes here, you have time to kind of think about who, who do I relate to in this passage? Who should I relate to? Do I relate to Herod, who wanted to be entertained, wanted to be comforted, wanted a good experience? From Jesus, Pilate, who is swayed by the crowd instead of making the right decision, or do you relate to Barabbas, who is set free?
Jesus died in this place. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country. They put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children, for the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women whose wombs never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then... They will say to the mountains, fall on us and the hills cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to a place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They, they said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. 
The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine and vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. Luke twenty three, twenty six through 46. I just want to thank you all for being here tonight. It is, uh, despite the mood that we are all in the midst of, it's actually a lot of fun to be here, both Catalyst and Pursuit, these two families coming together to do this most holy thing together. So thank you all for being here. In youth ministry, for years, I used to walk students through a spiritual practice called reflective meditation, and I uh, really want to do that with you all right now, so I want to invite you to close your eyes. Take a moment and quiet your mind. Just try and clear it however best you can of whatever images and thoughts maybe the things that have been in there all day from work, stress, anxiety, worries of preparing for the holiday this weekend, whatever it is, just take a moment to quiet your mind. And think with me about this powerful image of the cross. The crucifixion and the death of Jesus. Imagine what it would have been like to be present. If you want to pick a character in the story, go ahead and do that. But just imagine that you were there. Be it a disciple, a close friend, a front row spectator, a heckler. What would it have been like to be present for the worst moment in human history? We're at a place called Golgotha outside of Jerusalem, literally translated as the place of the skull. What does it look like? What sounds are you hearing? What languages are being spoken around you? What are the smells? What did the ground feel like under your feet? Are you standing on a slope? Is it grass? Is it gravel? Is the sun shining? How bright is it? What did the cross look like? 
If you were to go up and touch it, how smooth is the grain and the finish of the wood? Are there any background noises? Are there birds chirping? Now think about the thoughts and the feelings that are racing through you. How does your body feel? Are you exhausted? Are your legs about to give out? Do you need to sit? Is your mouth dry? Are you anxious? Are you scared? Is everything inside of you telling you that you leave and run away? You can open your eyes. It was in this very moment, a little under 2,000 years ago, on the outskirts of ancient Jerusalem, that your Lord and Savior died. A convicted state criminal of the Roman Empire. But he was no ordinary criminal, and this was no ordinary death. You don't need to close your eyes for this part, but imagine what it would have been like to be one of those disciples like we've talked about tonight. If you were a disciple of Jesus, it meant that you were a true believer. It meant that you were devoted. It meant that through that devotion, you'd experienced God. And as a Jew, this would not have been a new thing, but through Jesus, you'd experience God in powerful ways, in personal ways, things that were new to you. Powerful. You'd never known God in this way before. God had never been more real than he was to you today. You'd witnessed Jesus perform miracles. You had seen him do unimaginable things like walk across water. You had seen the crowds. You had seen everything. You had heard his teaching. Your mind had been blown time and time again. You knew that this man was God. He was a savior. He was your savior. You knew that Jesus was the way, that he was the truth, and that he was the life. He was everything to you. Being a disciple also meant that you had sacrificed a lot of things. You had turned away from your family, maybe from your career, from your culture as a Jew and your religion. And by turning away from all of those things and following Jesus, you had even given up your heritage, your lineage, your inheritance. All of those things were gone. Because you knew that following Jesus was so worth it. You had given up everything. But now it's Friday night. And this man that you had given up everything for, that you believed in 100%, was hanging on a cross and was dead. And let's be honest. As amazing as Jesus was, as powerful as the last three years of following this rabbi had been, his death calls everything into question for you. 
If Jesus was who he said he was, how could this happen? How did God let this happen? Jesus was the Son of God, wasn't he? He was the fulfillment of all of those prophecies that I have grown up with, of a coming Messiah. Scripture had promised that Jesus was going to come, and he's been here. I've seen it. I have lived it, and now he's dead. Can you imagine the fear and the anxiety and the hopelessness? On our end of history, we really benefit from knowing how the story ends. We've read the next chapter. And we know what happens next. And I think that as modern Christians, the temptation, the tradition is, we just want to get to Sunday as quick as we can. Because that's where the celebration, that's where the joy is. That's where we're made whole. But if you take time to really just sit with those thoughts and feelings, those images of what those disciples were going through, oh my gosh. Not only did they not know what was going to happen in three days, but everything that they knew, everything, was up in the air. So who killed Jesus? It was a group of anxious Jewish leaders who wanted Jesus and his heretical teachings gone. It was the regional Roman leadership that wanted to skirt a religious uprising from an uppity group of Jews. It was one of the 12 chosen disciples who sold Jesus out But it was also us. It was you. It was me. Our sins put Jesus on that cross. Our inability to live in relationship with God the way he originally planned and designed and intended this world to be, our sins. Our sins are what put Jesus on the cross. And friends, I don't want to acknowledge this reality to create shame. In fact, far from it. I think meditating on this reality tonight, meditating on the reality of our involvement in the death of Jesus, our culpability in his murder, makes the resurrection that we're about to experience on Sunday that much more powerful. It makes it that much more real. It makes Jesus conquering of death and our sins personal. Because Jesus died because of us. But I think more accurately, he died for us. He died for you and he died for me. Jesus died to rescue you. So my hope for you and your families over the next three days is to really just embrace that. Meditate on that. Be fully aware of the in-between, those moments between Friday and Sunday morning. And imagine what it would have been like to not know what was going to happen. 
That's the reality of Jesus' death. The fear, anxiousness, the hopelessness of Friday night. But I believe in doing so, by embracing that tension, it makes the joy of knowing Jesus and his resurrection that much more powerful and real for each of us. Here in a moment, we're going to sing another song together. And once that song is over, we are going to blow out the last candle. And like many traditional Good Friday services, we want to keep this space quiet. We want to keep it reflective. So if you want to stay here and pray, meditate, stay in a posture, a posture of humility with your God, then do that. You can stay here as long as you want. But when you, you leave, we just ask that you stay quiet and hold your conversations until you get into the lobby. Hold your excitement for Sunday until Sunday. Let me pray for you. Father, we just thank you for your son, for the reality of who he was and what he did for each of us. And as hard as it is, we thank you for the in-between. We thank you for Friday night. As gruesome and as horrible as it is, that reality of losing our Messiah, we thank you for the love and the grace that you so perfectly planned and executed through your son. Thank you. Amen. Oh